Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Law or Grace. All right, so last week as we finished up our study, if you remember, Paul was finishing up his third missionary journey and he had just entered into the city of Jerusalem, all right? And so up to this point in the Bible, the Holy Spirit has been warning Paul in city after city after city that there's trouble. There's trouble waiting for the apostle Paul in the city of Jerusalem. But that didn't seem to phase Paul because he said in verse 13 that he was ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want, I want you to picture Paul Luke, they got some friends. Maybe they're on horses, maybe they're on donkeys. They're entering into the city of Jerusalem. It's the end of the third missionary journey. And Paul's got all these mixed emotions, no doubt, going on in his mind and heart. I think that Paul, first of all, had a heartfelt love for his Jewish nation and heritage. So I think that's going on. As he's going into Jerusalem, I absolutely, Paul's thinking, love these people. I think also he has a desire to see more Jews come to Jesus as their Messiah. So that was like number one, always in Paul's mind. I so want to see Israel be saved. I think also he has this emotion of excitement because somewhere on his horse or maybe Luke's horse or one of the friends, there's a big bag of money that they had collected from the churches in Greece for the poor saints that lived in Jerusalem. He's excited about giving. Hey, James, look at this. We did this because we love you. Give this to the poor people in your congregation. He's excited about that. And on top of all that, he's got another emotion. He's concerned. He's concerned about the imminent trouble that's on the horizon. He knows something's gonna happen. He's probably looking over his shoulder. When's it gonna happen? When's it all gonna go down? By the end of this chapter today, he's gonna be in some serious hot water. All right, so today we pick it up in verse 17. So right now, if you're looking at Acts 21, verse 17, please say amen. amen. Okay, so here we go. Luke writes, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. The brothers are the Jewish believers in Jesus in the church of Jerusalem. They received Paul and Luke and their friends gladly. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to who? What's his name? James. That's not John's brother. Um, he was martyred earlier in the book of Acts. This is James, the little half-brother of Jesus, the lead pastor of the megachurch of Jerusalem. And so they went into James and all the elders were present. Lots of elders because this church is thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Verse 19, after greeting them, he, Paul, related one by one the things that who had done? God had done. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, look at me real quick. If God does something through you, don't take the credit. <laughs> if there's fruit in your ministry, uh, make sure you realize this is not because of you, it's not because of me, it's because God did this through us. We're tools. And we thank him for the work that he's doing. Paul's thanking him. He's telling them what God had done, end of verse 19, among the Gentiles through his ministry and when they heard it, they glorified Paul. Is that what it says? God. 
they glorified God. All right, so after Paul shares this good news from the results of his third missionary journey, James and the elders, they praised the Lord. They were grateful. Why? Because they, as Jewish believers, were so thankful that the Lord was saving the Gentiles, that Gentiles are becoming believers in Jesus all around the Roman Empire through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So, so far, so good. The, the elders meeting, the church meeting, starting on a positive note. But how many of you guys who maybe work in corporate America, uh, you know that whenever you have a business at your business place, uh, it may start positive, but at some point it always goes negative, right? Oh, so you guys have perfect meetings in your workplace during the week? And so this church meeting, it's about to go south here in just a moment. The positive's about to turn negative in a couple verses. And so it says now in verse 20, after they praised the Lord for all the Gentiles who were coming to Christ, they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many, what's the word? Thousands, okay? So it's myriads in some translations. This is a lot of people in this church. How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, believed in Jesus as Messiah. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach, here's where it goes south, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, so all those Jews in the diaspora, all the Jews who live in other areas of the Roman Empire. Paul, there's rumors going around about you. that You teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly, all these people in this church in Jerusalem, they're gonna certainly hear that you've come. All right, so the rumor mill is in full operation in the church of Jerusalem and it's manufacturing lies about the apostle Paul. This is so sad to me because the result of these lies is damage to a good man's reputation. Now, how many of you guys believe that every, every once in a while as we're going through, we got to apply this stuff to our lives, right? So let me make a quick, very quick application. If somebody comes to you and shares rumors or gossip with you, can I encourage you to at least do two things, okay? Number one, don't share that rumor or that juicy piece of gossip with anyone else. Did you know that the rumor mill can stop operation with you. Did you know that gossip can be stopped by you? How many of you guys believe that Satan loves it when gossip spreads around churches? He, why? Because he, he wants the church to be unhealthy. He wants the church to have the reputation among other people that they're all just a bunch of hypocrites who like to stab each other behind the back. And so you and I have the opportunity, if we're people of integrity, that when someone shares a piece of gossip with us, we just say, stop right now. Now, number two may cause you to lose a friend. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Number two, in love, challenge the gossiper to put themselves in the shoes of the person that they're talking about and ask, would they want others gossiping about them? And of course, the answer is no. Nobody wants other people to be talking about you in a negative way behind your back, especially when there's no truth to what people are sharing. This is happening in the church of Jerusalem. People are sharing lies about the apostle Paul behind his back. 
And so my encouragement is do those two things. And what's going to happen is that if we do those two things, two things are going to happen. Number one, our church will become even healthier. But then number two, the rumor mill will stop, at least for a little while. All right, so people are sharing gossip about Paul. What are they saying? They're saying to one another, hey, did you hear that he's teaching Jews to forsake Moses? Did you hear that Paul is going to Jewish fathers and telling them, you don't need to circumcise your sons. You don't need to walk according to our Jewish customs. And people are saying, no way, really? Man, tell me more. And they're sharing it with others. Now, quick clarification, just so you don't misunderstand the text. Paul did oppose the false doctrine that a Jew or Gentile had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Are you following with me right now? Say amen if you are. Okay, Paul, read Galatians. My goodness. Read Romans, okay? So Paul absolutely and rightfully so did oppose the false doctrine that a Jew or Gentile or anybody could be saved by keeping the law of Moses. But Paul would never tell a fellow Jew to abandon their Jewish culture. He's not going to do that. He won't do that. The reason I know that he didn't do that is because in Acts chapter 16, Paul circumcised Timothy. Timothy had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. For whatever reason, the kid never got circumcised. When he joined Paul's missionary team, Paul said, you need son to be circumcised. That's a Jewish thing. Why? So we don't needlessly offend um, the Jewish people that we're trying to reach. And another reason I know that Paul's not telling Jews to abandon their Jewish heritage is because in Acts chapter 18, Paul himself took a Nazarite vow, which is very Jewish. It's right from Numbers chapter 6. Okay, so Paul had no problem with Jews honoring their Jewish heritage. But he did have a problem with legalists who taught that you got to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And why in the world, you guys help me out, why in the world would Paul have a problem with legalists in the church? Here's why. Because salvation, you've heard me say this now, I think over a thousand times, because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, amen? Don't ever forget that. I'll keep saying that probably every Sunday until, from now until the rapture of the day that you or I go home to be with the Lord. So was there any truth to the rumors against Paul? I'll let Paul himself answer that question. He's gonna stand soon before a governor named Festus. In our Bibles, it's in Acts 25. It's actually at least two years from now, chronologically speaking. Look at what Paul says to Festus. He says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Well, there's your answer right there. He's innocent. Okay, and so if Paul was innocent, what's really happening in Jerusalem? What's happening is that the legalists are twisting his words in order to smear his name and marginalize his message of grace. So here's another question. Was James, the lead pastor of the church of Jerusalem, was he a legalist? The answer is no, absolutely not. James wouldn't, we saw this in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. James, the little half brother of Jesus would never teach that you gotta believe in Jesus 
and be circumcised and observe the Sabbath and keep the... James would never in a million years teach that. But James did love his Jewish heritage. And he knew Paul loved his Jewish heritage. And James has a plan to help Paul clear his name. All right, so look, at now, look now at verse 23. Verse 23, as we seek to understand what God's word says in Acts chapter 21. Verse 23, James addressing Paul in the elders meeting says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves, yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law. All right, so James has four guys in his church. These four guys are about to complete a Nazarite vow. All right, so we already learned about this vow back in chapter 18, the details of which can be found in Numbers chapter 6. All right, so I won't re-preach that sermon, but to suffice it for this, this afternoon to say this, the Hebrew word nazir means to be consecrated or devoted. All right, so by way of quick review, what is a Nazarite vow? It's a Jewish vow from Numbers 6, and it's a vow of dedication, of separation to God. All right, and so during the time of the vow, the Jewish person would, number one, avoid cutting their hair. They let their hair grow long. Number two, they avoided anything from the grapevine. That means no wine, um, no uh, strong drink, uh, no vinegar, uh, no raisins, no grapes. So you don't cut your hair. You avoid anything from the grapevine. And number three, you avoid going near a dead body because that would make you ceremonially unclean. Now, those of you who know the Old Testament, you know that Samson was a Nazarite for life. Even though he was a pretty worldly guy, he was a Nazarite for life. He let his hair grow long. One of my heroes in the Old Testament, Samuel, was a Nazarite for life. Apparently, John the Baptist was a Nazarite for life. So these guys are Nazarites for life, but normally, the vast majority of time, this was a voluntary vow where a Jew would consecrate himself for a certain period of time to dedicate himself to God. If you read the Mishnah, which is the oral Jewish law written down, it says that the Nazarite vow can be taken for 30, 60, or 100 days. All right, so at the end of the vow, Here's what you do. You go to the temple in Jerusalem and you um, appear before the priest and you offer the prescribed animal sacrifices and then you cut your hair. You give the priest the locks of your hair. The priest burns your hair at the altar there in Jerusalem. And then you partake of the food, part of the food from the animal sacrifices. All laid out in number six, you can read it later. Four Jewish men in the Jerusalem church had taken this vow. They're coming to the end of the vow. James, the pastor, sees it as an opportunity. So James goes to Paul. He says, Paul, my friend, here's your chance to clear your name. If you, as a Jew, 
will sponsor these Jewish men in their Jewish vow. You're going to show all the Jews in Jerusalem that you honor the Jewish heritage. Now, please understand, James would never ask Paul to ask a Gentile to do this. James would never try to get the Gentiles to come underneath the law of Moses. That's already been decided in chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, which James is gonna remind Paul about right now in verse 25, okay? So verse 25, James still addressing Paul at the elders meeting. He says, but as for the who? The Gentiles. We're switching gears here. And by the way, that's probably 98% of you listening to me right now. But as for the Gentiles who have believed in Jesus, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from pornea or from sexual immorality. And so again, I'm not gonna re-preach the sermon, but if you missed my teaching from Acts 15, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. All right, so James is basically telling Paul, we're not trying to overturn anything we already decided at the Jerusalem council. We're not trying to get Gentiles to come under the law of Moses. We just want you as a Jew to sponsor these Jewish men in their Jewish vow. What's Paul gonna do? Before we find out what Paul's gonna do, I feel like I need to briefly address this whole topic, very important topic, by the way, very controversial topic, about law or grace. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is one of those foundational truths of Christianity. This is one of those things that has been taught in such an erroneous way for so many years and confused so many Christians. So please listen like with Dumbo ears, okay? Now, some of you are new to the Bible, so we gotta start off real basic. What is the law of Moses? If you're taking notes, we have no cards. You can fill in the blank, because I really want you to have this to maybe review later. All right, so what's the law of Moses, otherwise known as the Torah? What does it mean? What, what in the world is it? Well, the law of Moses is made up of moral, civil, and ceremonial dictates or laws given to Israel in the Pentateuch. The English word Pentateuch comes from two Greek words, penta meaning five, tuch meaning scroll, the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws in those five books. The moral law, what is it? Well, first of all, you need to know the moral law reflects God's holy nature. How many of you guys believe that God is absolutely holy, <laughs> absolutely righteous? That's our God. And the moral law has to do with what he thinks, which by the way, what he thinks is all that matters. It's not what culture thinks is right or wrong. Culture calls wrong, right, and right, wrong. We're talking about what, what does God say is right and what does God say is wrong as revealed in the scriptures. This is why this book is so important. This is what defines our faith, all right? And so the moral law is God's, uh, reflects God's righteous nature and has to do with right or wrong. Examples of the moral law, I'll give you some. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
That's an example of God's moral law. Um, honor your mom and dad, God's moral law. Uh, don't commit murder. That's pretty important, right? Uh, don't commit adultery. That's pretty important, right? Right? <laughs> Evangelical American church, it's very important. We keep sex within the confines of marriage. Okay, please hear that. If you think, oh, there's nothing wrong if I fool around outside of marriage, listen, it doesn't matter what you think. It only matters what God thinks. If that offends you, I'm, I'm not gonna apologize. Are you kidding me? No. Okay, so what's God's moral law? Don't kill anybody. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. You know, don't covet. Okay, these are all examples of God's moral law. What's the civil law? Very close to the moral law, except the civil law gives the prescribed punishment if you violate God's rules. If you want some examples of the civil law, you can read later on Exodus 21 and 22. It's filled with so many examples of the civil law. I'll just give you two. Uh, Exodus 21, 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Okay, so... Um, if you're a Hebrew in the Old Testament and you're fighting and you hit somebody, you knock them out, but they're dead, they're gonna kill you. God's civil law. Another example of the civil law, uh, when a man's ox butts another so that it dies, uh, they shall sell the live ox and share its price. And so if you and I in ancient Israel are there and we're farming and my ox hits your ox and your ox dies, I sell my ox, take the money and here you go, brother, and we split it. This is all many examples of the civil law. Ceremonial law, if you're with me, say amen. amen. Here's where it gets controversial. Ceremonial law has to do with Israel's worship of God and also gives instructions of life under the old covenant. Examples of the ceremonial law include sacrificing animals to atone for sin. Jewish feast days. Keeping the Sabbath, sundown Friday, sundown Saturday, no work. Maintaining a kosher diet, circumcision, circumcising your kids, all right? And so all three categories, moral, civil, ceremonial. And by the way, when you read the first five books of the Bible, it's not going to say, all right, here's the moral law. The next page, here's the, the civil law. And oh, oh, here's the, it's not gonna do that. But we as Christians, we divide it in this way. Why? Because we wanna make a distinction between God's moral law, which we should pay attention to, and the ceremonial law, which we as Christians do not have to practice. Please send your emails to lholly at calvarypsl.com <laughs> if you do not agree with that. Next question. Why was the law given? Now, this is what excites me, excites me as, about, as a pastor is because I get to share the gospel like right now. And here's what I know, that the gospel is powerful and the gospel goes out and it touches hearts and speaks to people. Okay, the gospel is actually two and three, but let me just say number one, why was the law given, if you're taking notes, to set Israel apart as a holy nation? And so God, whether we like it or not, Back in the day, 
God chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And he gave them a special people, a special law through Moses. Why? Because he wanted them to be a holy nation. He wanted them to be um, a kingdom of priests. He wanted them to be set apart from the lawless pagan nations that were all around them. Of course, we know as we read the Old Testament that Israel blew it. That's another sermon for another time. But look at number two. Why was the law of Moses given? It was given to define what? Sin. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul wrote in Romans 7, 7 that I would not have known sin had it not been for the law. Right? Have you ever been driving down a road and you're driving and there's no speed limit sign? So you don't know how fast you're going to go. All right? Don't be like me where you kind of press down a little faster because you might see blue lights in your, in your back uh, win, uh, shield, the uh, back window. Okay? And so, but what happens? When you see 35 and you're going 55... I got to slow down. The law defines sin. In Romans 7, 7, Paul, his self-righteous Pharisee, who thinks I can keep the law blamelessly with his chest sticking out, but all of a sudden he reads this, you shall not covet. And his whole world crashes down around him. Why? Because he knows that for the better part of his life, he's wanted that, and this person's this, and over here that. And so he's a sinner, and by the way, here's the problem. None of us have kept the law of God. All of us are sinners. And church family, help our visitors out. The wages of sin is what? Death. death. This is serious stuff here. Not just physical death. And how do you know um, that we're physically dying? We're aging. <laughs> That's how you know. These, these aches and pains and we're getting older. And as I said, I think in my prayer, at least in this service, I think I said it, 10 out of 10 people don't make it off this planet alive, right? And so the law defines sin, and the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? If you're with me, say amen. amen. We all need a Savior. Enter in number three. The reason the law was given was to bring us to Christ, to bring us to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the really good news. Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he kept it perfectly, capital P, throughout his whole life. He never sinned one time. And you know why? He did it for you and me. Jesus Christ lived the life we could never live. And then he died the death you and I should have died. Why? Because he loves you. He did it in your place. He did it in my place. And so now, man, when we turn to Christ in faith, all of a sudden, what does he do? He gives us his perfect righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to us. Metaphorically speaking, when we turn to Christ in faith, when we look at Jesus on that cross and we say, I believe you did that for me. I believe you absorbed the wrath of God in my place. And I believe that you rose again three days later. I confess you as Lord. Let me tell you something. Jesus, metaphorically speaking, takes his perfect robe of righteousness and wraps you up in it. 
That's the good news of the gospel. And then a holy God, because how many of you guys believe God's holy? A holy God looks down on you, and he looks down on me, and he does not see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. And on that basis, he accepts us. He's always loved us, even when we're in sin. Some of you guys needed to hear that alone this, this morning. You say, oh, I'm such a sinner. God loves you. Don't ever forget it. But now he accepts you through Christ. Next question. Are Christians under the law of grace? Well, I'll let Paul answer. He knows more about this than I do. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under what, but under what? <laughs> You're not under law. You're not under law. And to really, really make it emphatic, hey, y'all, you're not under law, okay? You're under grace. If you and I are clothed in the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness, why would we ever take that robe off and exchange it for a sorry, torn, and tattered robe of self-righteous law-keeping? Are you guys with me this afternoon? Why? Why in the world would anybody who's clothed in Jesus' beautiful, dazzling, perfect, righteous robe ever take that thing off and put on this sour, sorry, torn and tattered robe of self-righteous law-keeping? I don't know about you, but man, when I someday take my last breath and I'm walking up to the pearly gates and I see Peter, and I am not saying that Peter's at the gate, don't send me that email either, all right? But I'm just, just loosen up, have some fun here. If I'm walking up to the pearly gates and I see Pete, here's what I know. I'm gonna have Christ's perfect robe of righteousness on. And as I walk up to that gate, I know Peter's gonna say, hey, Gabriel, open it up. Mike's coming. Why? Because Mike's so good? No, because Jesus died for Mike and rose again the third day. Open that gate up. We're going in and we're gonna have a party in heaven with a new heavens and a new earth and a new body, praising the Lord for what he did. Ladies and gentlemen, religion is man's efforts to get to God. Christianity is God's efforts to get to man. Christianity is the way. All this other stuff leads to death and destruction and hell. You say, pastor, that's not politically correct. I don't care. We're talking about people's eternal destination. Religion sends people to hell. Christ lets people go to heaven. So there's no way when I die, I'm gonna walk up to that gate in some sorry, torn and tattered robe of self-righteous law keeping because here's what I know. I'm gonna be saying, Pete, Gabriel, hello. And it's not gonna open. My heart breaks for some of you because you're still trying to wear that robe of your righteousness. Please listen very closely to Paul's words in Philippians chapter three. Paul said, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, listen right here. 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that's based on faith. That's where it's at. And so someone says, okay, pastor, if I don't have to have a righteousness of my own, wow, does that mean I can go and sin as much as I want to sin? Well, the same Paul who says not having a righteousness of my own also said in Romans 6.1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Or some of your translations, by no means. And so by no means do I want anyone to ever think that we here at Calvary PSL are antinomian. You say anti what? All right, so antinomian, anti meaning against, nomos, the law. And so we do not, please hear me, we do not believe that God no longer cares whether or not we obey his moral law. Uh-uh, God wants us to be holy. He absolutely wants us to be holy, but he knows we can't do it on our own. And that leads us to our last question, at least in this little topical middle part of the message. How can we be holy? Well, here it is. Here's the key right here. Boom. Walk in the who? There it is. This is one of those big differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. Because under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit did not live inside here. Under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit would come and go. Under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes inside. So here's what Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so by way of quick review, what do we do? Here's what we do, here's where we start. We look into the mirror of God's law. Doesn't matter what we think, it matters what God thinks. What does the mirror of God's law say? It says, we're sinners. <laughs> you got blemishes, man, and you need a savior. And so what do we do? We turn to Christ in faith for forgiveness, believing he is the son of God, believing he died on the cross, believing he rose again. And then what happens? The spirit of God comes inside of us. And this also makes me very excited right here. The spirit comes inside of us and he gives us a desire and he gives us the power to live for the Lord. Please say the word desire. desire. Please say the word power. power. That's what the spirit does as he comes inside of us, as we walk in a relationship with him. And then all of a sudden, guess what? You're growing in, in the Lord and nobody's perfect right out the gate. And so you're growing in the Lord and all of a sudden you find out, man, stuff's coming out of me. It's, it's love, it's joy, it's peace and patience and kindness. We need a lot of that in our culture. Goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control is coming out of me. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, we under the new covenant do not need a list of rules on a piece of paper to remind us every day to do right. We have under the new covenant, God's law written in our hearts. That's the difference. Paul said, if we're led by the spirit, we're not under the law. James says, Paul, 
getting back to our verse-by-verse study. Paul, will you sponsor these men, these Jewish men and their Jewish vow? Paul's like, sure. All right, so we're going to fly through the rest of this. Stay with me all the way to the end, all right? Look at verse 26. So Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple. Now, by the way, how do we know that this is not, how do we know this is before AD 70? Just someone shout it out to me. Yeah, temple's still there. The temple's going to be destroyed in AD 70. This is about 13 years prior to the temple being destroyed. Paul goes into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offerings, the animal offering presented for each one of them. And so really quick, let me just let you know this. Uh, lots of controversy over this, whether Paul was right in doing what James asked him to do or whether he's wrong. Those who say Paul's wrong, they, they and I understand their position. I'm not going to argue with them. They say, if you read number six and you see the concluding ceremony of the Nazarite vow, you see that Paul had to buy animal sacrifices for these four Jewish men, which included a burnt offering and included a sin offering. And wait, time out. I thought Jesus was our sin offering and Jesus was our burnt offering. What, Paul, what in the world are you doing? Okay, I get that. But those who think Paul's right, they're like, Paul's not even thinking of any of that. Paul just wants to win the Jews. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, to the Jews, I became a Jew so I might win more Jews. And so Paul knows if I sponsor these two Jewish men, the unbelieving Jews, I'm gonna win some favor with them, the believing Jews, maybe I'll stop some rumors from circulating around the church. And so whether, no matter what position you take, here's what I'm personally happy about. The sacrifice of the animals never took place. They never got that far because, well, a riot's going to start right now. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, probably Ephesus, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so the, Paul, uh, the Ephesian Jews see Paul and they're like, hey, we know you, stop. And they grab Paul. Hey, everybody, help. This is the guy who's teaching against the Jews and against the law and against the temple. And he brought Gentiles. He had the audacity to bring Gentiles into the temple. Now, here's what's really super cool. I had to share this with you. Did you know that separating the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts of Herod's temple, there was a four and a half foot wall, partition wall, that had all these warnings, warning Jews, um, warning Gentiles to stay out. And did you know that in 1871 and 1935, archaeologists discovered two of the signs? Here's one of them right here, it's displayed right now in the Israel Museum. If you go with us to Israel in 14 months, I'll take you and I'll show you this slab of limestone. Do you guys know this is, that rock is 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years old. Did you know this is the closest thing we have to the temple? 
And this is just a partial part of the warning statement against the Gentiles. There's another one they found that's in a museum in Istanbul. And so what does it say in full? The sign says, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple enclosure. Anyone who's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Right there. Hey, guess what? It's not fairy tales. This is true historical narrative. The rocks are crying out for us to pay attention to the word of God. And so the Jews from Asia Minor accused Paul of taking Gentiles past that sign. It's all a lie. But how many of you guys know the truth doesn't matter when people hate you? And so they hate Paul. They don't care about the truth. And Paul's going to find out how much they hate him in a very painful way. Look at verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up. That's a lot of people. And the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort um, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And so he, the Roman commander here, at once took soldiers and centurions, plural, and ran down to them, to the mob. And when they, the mob, saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped, look at the end of verse 32, they stopped doing what? <laughs> Beating Paul's poor guy has gone through it, hasn't he? Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, the Antonio Fortress. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. All right? So at the um, Museum of Israel, on the outside, there's this beautiful model of the temple. This thing is ginormous. And so if you see the really big courtyard on the left and the right of the temple, just say amen. So you see, that's the court of the Gentiles. And this is going to be hard for some of you who struggle with your vision like me, but around the inner courts... Not the tall wall, but there's a little like barricade. I don't know if you can see that going around the inner courts. That is actually the four and a half foot partition wall with all the warning signs telling Gentiles, stay out. On the northwest corner of the Temple Mount is the Antonia Fortress, named after Mark Antony, who was Herod the Great's friend. And so in that fortress was where all the Roman soldiers were. So if you see... Um, that castle-looking thing, top right of your screen, say amen. And so the soldiers are up there. They're looking down. They see that there's a mob forming, and there's a riot going on on the quarter of the Gentiles. And there's a guy in the middle of it, and he's getting the snot beat out of him. And so they tell their commander, we'll find out in chapter 27, his name is Claudius. Hey, Claudius, there's a riot. They all run down with at least two centurions, one centurion over 100 soldiers, at least 200 soldiers come down from that fortress to the court of the Gentiles. They, they run up, everybody stops beating Paul. He's by now, no doubt, bleeding. And what does the commander do in order to restore order? He arrests Paul and he binds him with two chains. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, what had the Holy Spirit been telling Paul over and over and over again as he's making his way to Jerusalem? What's waiting for Paul in Jerusalem? Trouble. He's experiencing it right now. And so this guy, the commander, Claudius, what's going on? Some are shouting one thing, some are shouting another. The mob becomes so violent trying to kill Paul. These soldiers got to lift him in the air. Can you see this? And they're marching with Paul back to the Antonia fortress. And the people are trying to kill him. They get to the steps. They set Paul down on the steps. Everybody's screaming, away with him. By the way, does that sound familiar? And then we finish it up, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And by the way, Josephus wrote about that, it happened about three years prior to this. And Paul in verse 39 is like, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And so verse 40, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in, in what language? Hebrew. Hebrew, they're all Jews. And so Paul, can you see him? He's standing at the top of the steps. He's bleeding. He wants to talk to the people who tried to kill him because he loves them. Tell me Christ is not in his heart. They're screaming, away with him. He raises his hand, waits till they're total silence. And then now Paul knows, hey, it's time to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And he's ready to share and we'll have to wait till another time to see what he says.